Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United City Greensboro podcast, a church in the heart of Greensboro with a desire to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our community at unitedcitygso.com. Enjoy today's teaching. Good morning, everybody. I am Corey. And I am on the leadership team here at United City, and I will be reading the scriptures for you this morning. On the screen, it will be NIV, but for my Bible, it is ESV, the extra saved version. And so if you have ESV, you know what I'm talking about. And so the first scripture reading from this morning is Matthew 11, 28 through 29. Let me read that for you. Come to me, all who labor labor are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And then the next scripture reading is going to be from Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing that you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. And this is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, friends and family. It's good to see everyone here this morning. Glad you have joined us as the fall has encroached upon us. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, God, for flannels. Yes. Chelsea boots are starting to arrive. All the worship leaders are excited. Finally, Chelsea boots season. Oh, man. (laughs) It's good to have you this morning. And I hope in our time of discussion, uh, you were able to process a little bit with those around you about the rhythms and practices that you may or may not be engaged in currently. Uh, We feel like it's important for our formation to Jesus that we create space to dialogue and discuss and not just receive new content every week, but we can actually process together and then ultimately practice. Uh, Our heartbeat at United City is to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. That when we practice the teachings of Jesus, that renewal springs forth, restoration comes forth. We are able to see glimpses of the new creation that is to come. We are in week three of our Rhythm of Life vision series, teaching series. And this collection of teachings is setting the stage for this season that we find ourselves in as a church and really as humans who are both longing for Eden as well as yearning for practices and disciplines and habits that can help guide us through the chaotic waters of our time. We all long for Eden, and we all long for some sort of guide or set of practices or habits that can help us navigate the chaotic waters of our moment. It's a turbulent time that we're living in. It's tumultuous, it's chaotic, and so we have to be anchored in this season that we are in. These five practices, we believe, provide for us a framework or a structure, sort of like a trellis. 
uh, is for a vine, uh, or lanes on a highway are for cars. They provide a framework for living, a structure for living, that have one desired ultimate end. That end is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Yet, we must realize that without strategic implementation and practice, we won't be able to achieve either of those. Our natural disposition will not be to love God. It will be to love ourselves. Our natural disposition will not be to love our neighbor. But instead, it will be to love ourselves and to essentially try to just survive the world that we're living in versus thrive. Howard Thurman has this quote. It is a strange freedom to be adrift in the world of men without an anchor anywhere. Always there is a need of mooring, the need for the firm grip on something that is rooted and will not give. Some of us come into this space this morning. We're navigating the waters of life, but we have no anchor. And the call in this moment is to have practices and rhythms that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 function as a solid foundation. So when the storms and the waters come, we will not be shaken. It must be noted, however, that a rhythm of life is not about controlling outcomes in our spiritual formation. You can't curate outcomes. You can't control outcomes. But what you can do is make yourself purposefully available to God and others by reorienting your already existing habits and practices. This rhythm of life is not something new that we're getting you to do. Our hope is not for you to do something new. Our hope is that we can examine our already existing rhythms and practices and engage in them differently. To engage in this rhythm of life that we already have in a new and fresh way. Changing its trajectory towards Jesus and the life he offers you. And to participate in it. One that leads to life and flourishing. All of us in this room have a rhythm of life. We have a set of practices. Anybody have a dog? Anybody have a dog or a pet at all in the room? Some of you have dogs. Yeah, there's rhythms of taking your dog out to the bathroom, right? You do the same thing every single day with your dog. Some of you, hopefully, you brush your teeth, right? Every day, I hope. Some of you this morning, I'm like, I don't know if they did brush their teeth, but they got a mask on. Praise God. <laughs> we all brush our teeth every morning. We all go to work. We show up here and we gather. We, we eat meals with our family. Some of you are really like tight, like on Thursday nights, so I eat with my family. That's what we do. Like that's a rhythm. It's a practice that we actually have. And so we already have one. What we're trying to do is be more strategic and more purposeful in reorienting the rhythm that we already have. I do feel like, though, in this season, in our community, we need to have a sign out front that says, enter at your own risk. Enter at your own risk. Because we are inviting all of you to change. We are inviting every one of you in this space 
to surrender your way of life and way of thinking for his way of life and his way of thinking. The call is to lose your life in order that you might find it in the language of Jesus of Nazareth. Enter at your own risk. We don't gather to hang out with friends. It's not why we're here today. We can do that during the week. We can go to Bourbon Bowl and hang out with friends. We can go over to a bonfire with friends. We can have a meal with friends and hang out and go to a game together with friends. It's awesome. We don't gather to hang out with friends. We also don't gather to drink good coffee. And we do have good coffee. We don't even gather to hear a good talk. It just makes you feel good or makes you think a little bit about your life and then you go back into it and it's the same old thing. We don't even gather so that you can give your kids off to someone for an hour and a half. It just gives you a break. That's a nice add-on. That is not the core reason why we come together. And we certainly don't gather together to get an emotional hit. Just to kind of get us through another week that's long and hard. We just pray we can get to next Sunday to get another emotional hit. That's not why we gather. We gather and journey together as a family to be with and become more like Jesus. Seeking to reflect him more clearly in our world. What Rich Velotis refers to as imaging Christ in the world. That is why we gather. My hope every Sunday when we come together is that you're challenged. That you're poked a little bit. That you're prodded a little bit. That you leave a little bit frustrated and affirmed. And you're like, how did that happen? I'm affirmed and I'm being challenged. That is my hope, my desire for when we gather together as a community. And an event, once a week, won't make it possible for us to image Christ in the world. It won't. It hasn't worked in the West over the last five, six decades. But it is possible if we become a practicing community with a rhythm of life, intentionally seeking after the same things together. Ken Shigematsu has a wonderful book called God in My Everything. And he says the purpose of the rule or the rhythm in this sense is not to be harsh or confining. It is to cultivate fruit. It serves as a pattern for life that enables us to experience the presence of Jesus in each moment of our lives, empowering us to become people who embody his love to others. I love that language. Embody his love to others. It is not to be confining or harsh, but instead, just like a trellis is for a vine, it helps us to produce fruit so that we might embody his love to others. That's why on our sermon series graphic for Rhythm of Life, we have this abstract looking trellis because it points again to this idea of direction and this schedule or this framework that is meant to produce fruit. Our starting point in this Rhythm of Life teaching series just a few weeks ago, uh, as we discussed, is prayer. That's the starting point, being with God. It's talking and listening 
to the spirit that resides in us. Did you know that the spirit of Jesus resides in us? We no longer simply just have one person in the flesh. We now all have access to his spirit. And prayer is communing with that spirit. And then Jordan last week moved us into rest. Some of this was new for many of you. To find ultimate rest is to be with God. It is a gift God gives us to Sabbath, to stop, to cease. Which, by the way, Sabbath is a weekly holiday. The Sabbath is a weekly holiday because the holiday in its origins of the word means a holy day. And the Sabbath was set apart to be holy. The Sabbath each week for us should be like holiday. If we Sabbath, we are engaging in a holiday. And these rhythms begin inward and move outward. They are engaged both personally and communally. We can engage in all of these personally and communally. It's not just inward, it is also outward. And today, we discuss the necessity of the rhythm of learning. And I hope you came prepared to engage in our talk this morning. You can talk back. You can say amen. You can say let it be. You can say preach it white boy. That's fine. Whatever you want. I hope you came to be engaged this morning and hopefully challenged, affirmed, encouraged, and transformed to walk in the way of Jesus. So you ready? Three of you. Excellent. Let's do it. Preach it, white boy. (laughs) I I preached at AME church one time, and uh, somebody literally said, preach it, white boy. I was like, come on. I felt so affirmed. That was so endearing, you know? Like, I kind of had a little bit of a lip when I started walking out of there, you know? Give me a white towel and put it on my shoulder, all right? (laughs) All right. So how do I get back to my notes now? I don't know. For the last few decades, the social sciences have theorized that humanity is becoming increasingly smarter. That we in 2021 are more intelligent, more intellectual, smarter individuals than we have or than those who have lived before us. This notion is commonly referred to as the Flynn effect, named after J.R. Flynn, who did research on human intelligence and IQ around the 1980s and early 1990s, that with, with each generation, IQ levels rise. The problem is that theory has just recently been debunked and refuted, even now by Flynn himself. A recent Forbes.com article read, technology is on the rise while IQ is on the decline. Recent NBC News article, IQ rates are dropping in many developed countries and that doesn't bode well for humanity. Evan Horowitz, who's the Director of Research Communication at FCLT Global, which is the firm behind this latest research, makes a statement in the article and I quote, people are getting dumber. That's not a judgment, it's a global fact. Welcome to church, my friends. (laughs) Many of us think that we are at a place of enlightenment that humanity has never been before. 
That is not the case. It is not true. And one of the greatest challenges facing education at large in the West is that you can pump and dump information to earn a degree or a diploma and yet still not have developed as a learner. All of you who are teachers and educators know you can pump and dump information and still not have developed as a learner. How many of you use flashcards back in like high school or college even as a way to pass the tests? Like I remember Jordan used to have stacks and stacks and stacks of three by five cards. You know, for me, biology, 10th grade, high school. If I had not had flashcards and my mother, I would have failed biology. There's no way possible. Flashcards were the study mechanism that we used. And it was really the only way I passed biology specifically. But the problem is that the only goal for us with these flashcards was to pass the test or get the grade. To some degree, the modern student has turned more into a producer of grades and test scores rather than taking on the true posture of a learner or a pupil or a student where new ideas are implemented into life. Have you ever met someone who just lacks common sense but had a high GPA in college? Yes? Yes. So in our household, um, in our family, My wife, who's about to go into labor any moment, graduating from undergrad, magna cum laude. I graduated, thank the laude. (laughs) Some of you are shocked because of my intellect and my wit, I understand. Jordan had a robust 3.85 GPA in college, most outstanding business student. I had a 2.98 GPA in college. However, despite my underperforming in the academic bureaucratic environment, that is the education system, my common sense is much higher than my wife. And she will affirm that all day long. (laughs) We can have high grades and lack common sense. And I love my wife with everything that's within me. But the same is true for our discipleship to Jesus. Our tendency is to become producers of religious content rather than apprentices who live and learn the way of Jesus. We learn to speak about the way of Jesus versus learning to practice the way of Jesus. But that goes right against the nature of what it means to be a disciple, especially in the first century. A disciple or a mathetes in Greek is a learner by participation, not consumption. A learner by participation, not consumption. Think about participation points in class. That's an actual grade, right? Like if you don't participate, you're going to get a bad grade in participation. Part of the goal of following the way of Jesus is to participate, not simply consume information. You're not just sitting in a lecture taking notes. That's not what it means to be a disciple. You're engaged in the lab. You're on the field trip with Jesus participating. Jesus always took his disciples on field trips. 
You must engage and participate. And that's what it means to be a disciple. We don't just simply download more information. We engage with what he is calling us to put into practice, to do. And the struggle we find ourselves in now is that we might have some of the quote-unquote right answers. But we have lost the ability to learn and apply. And the ingrained Christian subculture answers that have been easy to spout off for over the last five decades are becoming increasingly challenged and refuted by secular culture. You simply can't just throw out Christian cliches any longer. It's like we in the West have produced Christian widgets on a factory line. Instead of resilient and thoughtful practitioners of the way of Jesus. Jesus, friends, is our rabbi and our Lord. Not some app we have on our phone that we go to when times get hard. Or some rubber wrist bracelet that we wear symbolically on our wrist. Or a necklace that we put around our neck. He is our rabbi and our Lord. He's not even some master class that we have a subscription to. He is our teacher and he is our king. And he is calling us to engage. And in Matthew chapter 11, a passage that Jordan actually taught on a bit last week, I'm coming back to today, Jesus is rebuking the various towns he has been to teaching, preaching, and demonstrating the gospel for not repenting. And the idea of repentance is changing the way that we think about life and reality. The Greek word is metanoia. It means to change the way we think. So when Jesus says, repent, he says, change the way you think. You need a new mental map of reality. Change your vision of reality. Change your view of life. Get a new philosophy. And so he's rebuking three different cities in total in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus don't play, guys. He's not soft. He goes through these towns and he's rebuking them for not repenting. And this is his closing statement in Matthew 11. Though he rebukes, he also calls into himself, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Jordan taught on that last week. You can go back and listen on podcast, Spotify, Apple podcast, or YouTube. All right. Then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Notice this statement of promise. You will find rest for your souls. Jesus makes a lot of absolute statements about reality. The first and primary call of Jesus that we see in Matthew chapter 11 is to himself. It is always the primary call. It is to intimacy. The only way we can learn from our rabbi is to be with our rabbi. It is to be with our Lord and King. It always starts with intimacy and proximity. And that intimacy, as Jordan taught on last week, produces rest. Intimacy with Jesus always produces rest, calmness, peacefulness, tranquility, wholeness. And here's the beautiful part. He accompanies us along the way. He accompanies us along the journey by way of his spirit. 
Matthew 28, surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. He doesn't just say, hey, here's all your work you got to do. I'm going to be over here in the corner grading some papers. Good luck. Okay, you got a little Johnny? All right, put your phone up. Put your phone up, Johnny. You know, no. He says, let me sit down with you. He's like a good mom or dad that sits down with their kid who's doing algebra for the first time. And mom or dad, like, I ain't done algebra since 1988. And they're trying to work through it. Like, Jesus sits with us and journeys with us along the way. So the first call, the primary call, is to intimacy and to himself. Then he instructs to take his yoke upon us. A yoke literally is and was meant to bind two cattle together. That's the literal purpose and literal understanding of what a yoke. And so what he is saying here is that we are to be bound to Christ. To be bound to him. To be bound to our rabbi by a yoke. John's word for this is the word abide. When John speaks of the idea of abiding... He is talking about being bound to Jesus. And then there is also a metaphorical usage of this word yoke that is in relation to the set of teachings a Jewish rabbi would have had. Their understanding of Torah as well as specific laws that they wanted you specifically to follow. A rabbi's yoke wasn't just teachings but an actual way of living. A philosophy of life, you might say. Not just a set of teachings, but a way of life. All of us come from different families of origin. All of us come from different ways of life. Some of you grew up north, and there's a way of life up north. Some of you grew down south, way down south. There's a way of life. Some of us grew up in the mountains of North Carolina, way of life. Some of us may have grown up at the coast. There's a way of life. We all have a way of life, and it's not just a set of principles or teachings. It's encompassing every bit of how we view the world. And Jesus is calling us to a new philosophy, a new way of life when he says, take my yoke upon you. John Wimber, who's the founder of the Vineyard Movement, says Greek pupils or rabbinic students bound themselves personally to their master and looked for objective teaching with the aim, check this out, of themselves becoming a master or a rabbi. The goal is not to just gain new knowledge and information or even new practices. It's actually to become a rabbi yourself. That's why we're called to make disciples of all nations, teaching others to obey all that Jesus commanded us. So then Jesus instructs us to learn from him. To not simply have this new information, but to practice it. The primary activity of a disciple is to learn. The primary activity, I'll repeat it again so you can write it down in your notes, on your phone, or in your journal. The primary activity of a disciple is to learn That's what it means to be a disciple, to be a learner. To implement what is taught and put into practice or action. The Greek word is mentheno, and it means to grow in knowledge as well as to learn by use or practice or to be in the habit of. That's what it means to learn. 
This learning and this yoke or this way of life, again, ultimately leads to rest for our souls. And Lord knows in this moment, we need some rest. Our souls are aching. Our souls are dry. Our souls are anxious. Our souls are withered. We need rest. And this yoke leads to rest for our souls, which is the language the Eastern Orthodox use for salvation, the healing of our souls. So to be a disciple of Jesus requires that we learn to know Jesus and his teachings. On top of that, because of the nature of this Greek word for learn, mentheno, it also shows us that learning the way of Jesus also has a practical utility to it. Jesus' teachings aren't just quick and witty one-liners that you might get out of a fortune cookie. Or that you might find on the counter of a random bathroom. Or you can pick up at Hobby Lobby. It's not just random, witty one-liners. They are practical instructions for living that produce rest for your souls. And one of the traps, here's one of the traps that we can get into, especially for those of us who grew up in the South, especially in the evangelical world. One of the traps that we can get into with Jesus, if we aren't careful, is that we begin to focus so much on the crucifixion and the resurrection that we forget about his life, ministry, and teachings. And when we only focus on the cross and the resurrection, our maximum potential is conversion of belief rather than transformation of our lifestyle. The crucifixion and the resurrection only adds validity to the work and teachings of Jesus. It isn't simply about justification. It's not. It's not just about the cross. It's way more than that. It's not just about the resurrection. That simply adds validity to the teachings of Jesus and who he actually is. The great Tim Keller says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teachings, but whether or not he rose from the dead. The crucifixion and the resurrection only adds weight to his teachings. It doesn't eliminate them. If he resurrected, we must accept them. I get fascinated when I'm around some friends in certain theological camps who act like Jesus never preached the gospel. Simply because, you know, he had to die first. It's like, I'm pretty sure Mark 1 literally talks about the gospel. Jesus comes preaching the gospel. The Greek is the same word. It's euangelion. Jesus preaches the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And he calls us to repentance. Don't get me going on a theological tangent here this morning. Jesus addresses many topics. He addresses topics like meaning, identity, Emotions, vocation, money, love, friendship, marriage, neighboring, justice, politics, economics, praying, and suffering. He addresses all of those things that we are engaged in on a daily basis. But he does so in a way that invites us into a journey of formation. Not simply acquiring new knowledge or facts. One that takes a long, long time. And that is one of our challenges as we follow Jesus in our current moment. We don't wait long enough. 
We're not patient enough. It's a long journey. It's a long movement towards Christ and sanctification and holiness of being transformed into his image. Paul follows right in line. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of what? Peace or rest will be with you. Philippians 4, 9. Learning goes hand in hand with practice. By default. We learn by doing. That's how we learn. Our brains are wired that way. 70% of our learning is by doing. Practicing. Me just talking to you and Jordan teaching you and you writing notes down is not going to change you. It's going to be long obedience in the same direction of putting things into practice. We have to get in the lab, as I said earlier, and go beyond the lecture. Now, to shift just a bit, what if I told you that knowledge of and knowledge about aren't in opposition, but have a symbiotic relationship? That part of learning isn't just embodied through physical practice, but also through stimulating the mind. What if I told you that every one of you in this room is a theologian, a philosopher, a thinker? (laughs) That's going to stick. Okay. We think and talk about God. That's what theology is. One of my professors at Wesley Seminary, John Drury, says theology is God talk. That's what theology is. When you talk about God, you're doing theology. And we think and talk about the world. Philosophy is thinking about new ideas. We are all theologians and philosophers. Maybe not in the academic sense, but in the literal sense, we certainly are. Engaging the mind and intellect and engaging the heart and emotions tend to be put against one another. But they must go hand in hand. Again, some of us grew up in highly intellectual church environments. It was all head, all mind. Some of you love that stuff. You're like, I could read Tim Keller all day. N.T. Wright, I'll eat it up, except for Cameron. Um, (laughs) Some of you are like, I just love the heady stuff. All right? Some of you are like, I just want to listen to Bethel. I just want to listen to Maverick City and I just want to sway in the spirit. They're not at odds with one another. Some of you grew up in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Bible. You guys ever heard of the the, the Trinity there? And some of us grew up in an anti-intellectual environment. It's like all emotion, all heart, no mind. We have to have both. They're not against each other. You need your emotions to experience God. But you need your mind gripped and challenged. Especially in the age of ideas, which we live in now. We live in an age of ideas. Keep in mind, it was an idea that tempted the mind and heart of Adam and Eve. Did God really say? It's an idea. Dallas Willard, who was a philosopher for decades at the University of Southern California which again, we have one of his books out front, The Divine Conspiracy. Dense read, highly encourage you to check it out. Ideas, not tyrants, are the primary stronghold of evil in the human soul in society. Wow, why? You can't fight ideas with soldiers. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse two, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your, what? 
your mind. Too many of us have only engaged in the heart and soul. But God also wants you to engage your mind. This is why the call is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 5 says this. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds, which assumes that there are strongholds in this world, by the way. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every what? Thought to make it obedient to Christ. What does this mean for us? To grow in the knowledge of God or to know God more requires that we grow in our understanding of the arguments, ideas, and pretenses of our day. And to stack it beside the ontological reality of Jesus and his teachings and then compare the two. To look at the kingdom of heaven and the empire of Babylon and compare the two. To see where they are not in alignment. We have to have a greater understanding of the arguments and the pretenses and the ideas of our day if we're going to grow in the knowledge of God. To see which produces life and which doesn't. And then do we trust Jesus' teachings and his way of life will actually produce peace and rest? Or will the ideas of our day and time produce rest and peace? Stack them side by side. Will they produce rest and peace? The data says they won't. Just go do your research. The ideas of secular society are not producing flourishing. They're not. And it certainly has no meaning for suffering. If the primary goal of life is hedonism or pleasure, right, just to do whatever you want, or if it's just nihilism, in other words, things just mean nothing, okay? There's no meaning in suffering. The way of Jesus provides us meaning in suffering, first of all, okay? But we can't demolish what we don't know. You can't demolish arguments of society if you don't know the arguments of society. So we have to gain greater awareness. We live in an era of ideological idolatry where ideas are God. Ideas that are partially true, but incomplete. In fact, that is what heresy is. Heresy is simply partial truths that have been made the whole truth. It's not that certain heresies are totally wrong, it's just they're incomplete. This is what we do in an ideological world. And I believe, friends, and maybe you're experiencing some of this, and I want you to wrestle with ideas in this space, by the way. We invite you to wrestle with ideas. I believe one of the reasons why so many of our friends and family are getting sucked into ideological vacuums is because they didn't know when the idea became an ideology in the first place. Whether it is a hyper-conservative ideology or a hyper-progressive ideology. Many of our friends who've gotten sucked in both directions 
we're probably not able to articulate the arguments and the ideas of our day and time. This is why we have to gain greater awareness of the ideas of the enemy. His primary mode of attacking us, friends, is deception. It's through ideas. It's amazing that when Jesus is tempted by the devil, it's, it's a very calm conversation. You ever notice that? Matthew chapter 4, it's very calm. He's tempting with ideas, and he knows the scriptures. Keep that in mind. We live in an age of ideas. Dallas Willard, again, Christian spiritual formation is inescapably a matter of recognizing in ourselves the idea system or systems of evil that governs the present age and the respective culture that constitute life away from God. The needed transformation is very largely a matter of replacing in ourselves those idea systems of evil with the idea systems that Jesus Christ embodied and taught and with a culture of the kingdom of God. We must know the ideas of the evil one to be able to stack the two against each other. As we learn the way of Jesus, we must also learn the way of the world and the false narratives of our day. What are they? If I sat down with you and said, what, what do you think of the false narratives of our day? What would you say? Would you know? Would you be like, I, I don't know. We have to have awareness. What are the hollow philosophies of our moment? We have to be able to have an awareness. There's a couple books that do a great job, I think, of highlighting a lot of this. Just a few to share with you. Uh, one is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. It's a great read on the moment that we're living in and how we've gotten to this place. Another one that came out decades ago by Leslie Newbegin called The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. One more, again, Mark Sayers has one called Strange Days, Life in the Spirit in a Time of Upheaval. And then, I don't have it on the screen, we have two copies in the front. Our dear friend, John Mark Comer, just released his new book, Live No Lies. And it speaks to the ideology of our day. You know, Jesus warns of false teachers multiple times. Multiple times. Paul warns of false teachers. Peter warns of false teachers. And John warns of false teachers. Jude warns of false teachers. In other words, all of these writers of the New Testament warn of false ideas about God and reality. All of them spend significant time talking about false teachers. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 through 4. For the time will come when... Listen to this in, in context of our moment. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine or sound teaching. Instead, to suit their own desires, which is hedonism, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. We must know what these myths are. We're experiencing this in our current moment. 1 John chapter 4, verse 2 through 3. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. If Jesus is not acknowledged as Christ and King, it's a false ideology. John is giving us very clear directions here. I'm not even saying just throwing around the title God. If Jesus is not proclaimed, it's not the full picture of what the New Testament is pointing to, let alone the entire canon of the scriptures. Okay? 
So, to close, here's a few basic practices for learning. Okay? Few basic practices for learning. There's just a few that I want to walk through with, with you. The first is to read. Our reading ability in the West has dramatically dropped over the last decade or two. We don't read well, okay? Reading is very important. It's actually how we grow to become critical thinkers. It has, there's tons of research on the power of reading. We need to read the scriptures. Be in the scriptures. Read them as scripture. In other words, reading them in a way in which you are formed and shaped and that the scriptures have some sort of outcome they want for you, which is to change you, to reveal Jesus to you, to shape you, okay? to reveal the reality of God. And to put to practice the teachings of Jesus. So read the scriptures. You need to get in the scriptures. Lectio 365 is a great app that we love. I, I, I challenge you to download it. It's free. It's a good start. Try it every day. Get into the scriptures. You can meditate on the scriptures. You can do an in-depth study on the scriptures if you'd like. There's different ways to read, but you need to read. Okay? But you don't just need to read the scriptures. You need to read books. Okay? You need to read books. Karen Swallow Pryor, who's an English professor, she says, to read well is not to scour books for lessons on what to think. Rather, to read well is to be formed in how to think. Reading helps us know how to think. And in an age of ideas, we have to know how to think clearly. The second practice is ask questions. Be good at asking questions. Dialogue. So one of the things that's beautiful about Jewish culture. Questions are a key part of Jewish dialogue in the family. Ask questions. You can ask any question that you want. We want to create space in our community for you to ask questions. Deep, hard, challenging, jagged questions about life and reality. Debate with someone you trust and love. Go back and forth. Iron does sharpen iron. Okay? Go back and forth. Ask questions. The next Practice is to think critically. To think critically. Rationalize. If you go and look at how Peter and John approach the tomb, they look in and Peter, the Greek in the, in the original language, speaks to him rationalizing with evidence what's happening. Okay? Rationalize. Think critically. Not just with our feelings, but also with our brain. Okay? Sometimes we have to go beyond the feelings and actually think with our brain. Think critically. And then the next practices to test. Test these hypotheses out. Test the teachings of Jesus out. Test the ideas of the culture out. Do they match up when they move to their logical conclusion? It's basic critical thinking. The problem for many of us, we don't go past reading. We ingest content from YouTube or a podcast and we don't think critically. We don't ask questions of it. We don't test it. We just go with it. Because why? It appeals to our desires, our flesh, and our attractions. And again, it doesn't matter to me if it's this hyper-fundamentalist conservative ideology or hyper-liberal and progressive ideology. They're on both sides of the spectrum pulling at us in vacuums. If you want to feel something or be affirmed an idea you already have, you can find it. This is not the space for it. I want you to be challenged in this space. Okay? All right. We're on the same page. Very good. St. Augustine, the great early church father says, patience is the companion of wisdom. We've got to learn to be patient, to be slow, wrestle. It's amazing. Some of our friends 
on fire for Jesus six months ago, and now they're like way off into the deep end. In like a year. That shows us that the culture is forming us because it's fast-paced. We're not patient. We don't wrestle long enough. And I'll be honest, the church has done a terrible job of creating space for doubt and wrestling with some of these hard truths. Terrible. We shut down questions. I don't want to do that. I want to create space and say, come, let's wrestle together. But let's also trust in faith the way of Jesus will actually produce rest. Let's see where that leads. But you must do all four of these patiently and slowly. Read, ask questions, think, and test. And wrestle with these questions in community. You can't wrestle with a podcast. You have to wrestle with the people of God. Majority of our friends who've gone off in the deep end, they do it in isolation. Do they not? They do. Do it in community. Wrestle. And wrestle with people who might think differently than you. All right? We have to do this slowly. Finally, I'll close with this. This is a quote from from John Mark Comer, again, our dear friend. Listen to this. What if Jesus knew the true nature of reality better than we do? What if? What if he was the most intelligent teacher to ever live and his insight into the problems and solutions of the human condition is the most piercing to date? What if? What if that is actually the case?